All right, welcome to the first episode, season one, episode one, Theology and Dialogue. We're a group of students at Villanova University in the Department of uh, Theology and Religious Studies. We have all these great conversations all the time. It's part of what we do, and we wanted to share it with you. It's been quite a road getting this thing produced, getting it out, but we're glad to have it here, finally available, and we've got a really, really good first episode, I think. I'm, I am really excited about what's about to happen. Indeed. Uh, yeah. it, the conversation was really excellent, um, um, very engaging, and uh, really kind of, uh, kind of touched on uh, a lot of really uh, uh, critical insights, um, n- not just in particular um, religious traditions, but um, more generally, quote, questions of, of truth and mm-hmm. um, yeah. how we uh, even do, do meaning in, mm-hmm. uh, in general. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of juicy content coming right up. So before we get any further, I want to introduce myself. My name is Jacob Gibbon. I am sort of kind of hosting this thing, and uh, I have with me Luke Hopkins, a a fellow uh, student and professor. I guess you graduated last semester, didn't you? I I did, so I mean, I am an adjunct professor now, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I hang around here, so. (laughs) Yeah, we're glad that he hasn't left. So, um, let's look here. Today we are talking about hagiography and religious truth based off of a book co-edited by uh, Rico Monge, uh, Carrie Sanchirico, and Rachel Smith. Uh, Carrie and Rachel are professors in our department. Indeed. Um, I've, I've actually had the, the privilege of, uh, of studying with uh, Dr. Sanchirico and um, his... Um, his work in uh, uh, cross-cultural and, 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 and interfaith dialogue, um, particularly between um, uh, between uh, Christian uh, traditions and um, indigenous uh, so South Asian traditions, um, it, it Hindus mostly, um, has it's is really um, it's, it's pretty groundbreaking stuff, mm-hmm. I, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, I I've learned a lot from I, I learned a lot from his class and from this book as well. Dr. Sanchirico's work has been has been focused mm-hmm. in um, communities in, in in India where um, where where Christians mix with um, with Hindus just in in a you know in an everyday setting and um, the um, exchanges that, that that take place there and the the, the mutual um, um, you know mutual understandings and you know, sometimes misunderstandings. Um, yeah, so Sanchirico's work is focused really on ethnography, right? Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. He's he's definitely got a uh, sort of a an ethnographic and sort of sociological mm-hmm. bent to uh, to his work. Um, it, it it definitely you know uh, has strong um, implications for, mm-hmm. for for theology, but he's he's very he's concerned with uh, kind of bringing us the, the facts on the ground in in India and. Uh, a place of real ferment where mm-hmm. new Christian conversions are taking place and Hindus are uh, worshiping Jesus while not uh, not yet being baptized and it's you know it's a, a really interesting in between state. Mm-hmm. So Rachel Smith is a medievalist from Harvard Divinity School. Uh, she got her PhD there, worked with Amy Hollywood, and worked on Thomas of Canterbury. 
Right. Right. That's and, correct. And uh, and I actually I I got to take her class uh, last semester on <clears throat> affect and devotion, uh, which was really interesting um, uh, examination of medieval mystical texts that. Uh, uh, Stressed unity with Christ through his, through identification with his bodily suffering and mm-hmm. and um, uh, it was just a it, w- it was an extremely um, in some cases very odd but also extremely compelling um, uh, it was extremely compelling material it was really fun and and Dr Smith just has a way of really kind of ab- both attending to the details mm-hmm. right of the yeah. text and also yeah. providing the sort of context that just makes the whole tradition and the narrative sort of sort of seamlessly blend in in some ways right and also like uh demonstrates some of the strange idiosyncrasies and, <laughs> and 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 just kind of uh weird stuff that medieval people were writing and doing I mean, yeah. right you know it's a very Christians strange are weird. yeah right exactly really weird <laughs> yeah well and this is i think pertinent to our um Oh, I guess we should introduce Rico, huh? Oh, yeah, we didn't do that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Rico Monge, um, he uh, um, provided the uh, like the the chief editorial work for for, uh, for this this volume and and the uh, the opening chapter, um, and uh, he actually has um, a master of, of divinity from uh, Saint Vladimir's uh, um, Orthodox Theological Seminary. He's an ordained Orthodox deacon, actually. Um, he's, uh, he's he's really interested in um, uh, traditions of, of asceticism um, in um, both in, in Eastern Christianity and and also in Islam as well, um, and uh, kind of analyzing those traditions using Nietzsche among mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Oh my gosh, I got so excited when he started dropping the continental philosophy bombs Mm. probably about halfway through this interview. I I think they'll be here in part one, but if not, wait for part two. uh, Right. (laughs) Oh, they're so tasty. In in this episode, we're going to do part one of the interview. We sat down, it's about an hour long or so, a little more than an hour. So we're going to do the first half of that today uh, and uh, be on the lookout for part two. Um, And... Luke sits down. You sit down with uh, with uh, Rachel, Rico, and, and Carrie, and and mm-hmm. uh, and and get right into. Um, can you give some of the background to to the sort of Dharmic uh, side of things that maybe some of our listeners might be less familiar with? Sure, I, um, absolutely. Um, so uh, the term Dharmic uh, comes from from Dharma, which is uh, it's a um, a, a, a Sanskrit word that um, refers to like uh, laws, a social custom, role, um, um, like uh, a societal order, essentially. And it, it's common; it is a common understanding in uh, Hinduism and, and Buddhism, um, and uh, it's 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 kind of a, an umbrella term for. Um, Hindu, uh, Buddhist, um, and to, to some extent uh, Jain uh, uh, traditions, um, and there are examples of of Hindu and, and Buddhist um, uh, hagiographies, um, you know, saint stories, um, so stories of uh, sages, and some 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 pretty wild uh, uh, exploits. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, of uh, enlightened people in, in in this text. So that's and, and how does that uh, how does that relate over to um, uh, Santrico's ethnography? What 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 exactly is he dealing with uh, in his chapters, and and what are his contributions to the discussion? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, Dr. Santrico has uh, he's particularly interested in um, the movement, uh, a small but uh, in some ways growing um, movement of of Christian conversion in um, what he terms in his chapter of a Hindu heartland in in Benares in in India. Um, And uh, what's going on there is uh, you have a a group of people um, known as the the Chris Bhaktas um, who um, you know, were born and raised Hindu um, and have not, you know, formally renounced Hinduism. They're, they're not baptized Christians, um, but uh, they, they revere Christ. Um, they, um, you know, they, they uh, see in Christ a, um, you know, a, a manifestation of God, of, 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 uh, of, of divinity, and, you know, um, have experienced... Uh, well, uh, holiness, um, mm-hmm. and um, and um, the thing that, that, that comes out in his chapter is uh, sort of the mutual admiration between um, the, the, these these Christ bhaktas and, um, and, and and Catholic priests, um, and kind of the understandings that, that that they have of one another, which uh, don't always match up, of mm-hmm. course. So just mm-hmm. kind of the um, the negotiation that, uh, that, that takes place there. Mm-hmm. Um. Awesome. Well, thank you, Luke. We're going to get right into it. Uh, before we do, I'll just uh, mention the title of the book once again. It's Hagiography and Religious Truth, Case Studies in the Abrahamic and Dharmic Traditions. So um, I, I found this uh, this book actually very interesting, um, especially uh, um, my, uh, my my background is is in in religious studies, and um, I, I've also uh, I, I've in, in my personal life have um, have been very um, sort of uh, preoccupied with the question of of, of religious truth and. Um, and that uh, hagiography is the medium through which um, the, this book explores that question. Um, so it's uh, not a super familiar word, hagiography, and it's maybe not one that's um, uh, common in, in, in uh, popular parlance. Um, so I, I was uh, hoping to start out just um, just by talking a little about a bit about what hagiography is, like what purpose it serves, um, <coughs> how it differs from other types of of religious writing. Um, so I guess I'll just uh, open it to whoever wants to take that. <laughs> Technically, it just comes from the Greek hagios and graphi, so the writings, either sacred writings, or writings about the holy, about holy persons. Um, in our book, we really tried to extend it from textual 
um, just a textual framework to thinking about liturgy, hymnography, poetry, pilgrimage, so practices, also as part of a hagiographical devotion. I'd also just add that in religious studies as well, I'm thinking particularly of uh, South Asian religious studies, people like Barbara Holdridge have tried to expand our understanding of scripture uh, being beyond the text. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we have a more capacious category with which to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, and running with what you were saying about how it's not a, a super familiar word, mm -hmm. um, that's in part why in my essay, I point out that like when it is used in common speech, it is usually equated with <laughs> untruth or falsehood or right. manipulation. Mm -hmm. So I give the example, I actually you know, gave the example of Rick Riley, the uh, former uh, Sports Illustrated and now ESPN um, writer, <laughs> talking about Joe Paterno and what was happening there and a, and a professor confronting him you know, long before the scandal hit saying, are you here to give the real story or are you here to write a hagiography? Right. And Riley said he had to look the word up, but as you know, he came to understand it, it was the person was meaning, you know, are you here to write the real story or are you here to write make him out as a saint and thus mm -hmm. distort the story? So in some ways this this book this book is trying to grapple with that yes, you there's always gonna be a uh, a disconnect between what can be verified and any sort of like historical writing, but also how that does not automatically disqualify these things as bearing truth. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I found that uh, particularly um, like that um, exploration, um, which uh, I, you talk about this too, Dr. Smith, in, in, in your essay. Um, uh, about uh, uh, hagiography being sort of equated with uh, sort of the mythical and of course the, the, the mythical has sort of a pejorative connotation um, in, in uh, you know, just our, our common way of, of thinking uh, uh, today in a, in a secular society. Um, and um, so the, the other part of the title, of course, is, is a Religious truth, and so I, I was uh, I, I was wondering if, if if you guys could talk about like sort of the the qualifier religious on on truth there because um certainly uh, like um, I I think uh, I I can't remember in, in in which essay it is I I, I think it's yours Dr Malke um that uh, you you mentioned that like the the humanities um you know can can sort of talk about having uh, you know, so some sort of access to truth, but it's sort of by way of like personal meaning and subjectivity, um, and that's not like quote unquote real truth um, in the, the way it's often understood in, in the mm -hmm. academy. So it's sort of like backdoored in, right? As it were, um, and so I, uh, I, I was, I was, I was uh, interested in sort of, uh, you know, using the term religious truth like if that's you know if that's bracketing truth in in any way um that's you know, many people might hear it that way uh yes um it's definitely an in, an intentional move 
Mm. And the move there is to emphasize that truth operates in in many different registers. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, <coughs> one of the one of the things that I've been working on, or at, you know, since well, you know, before getting my PhD, and it runs through my work in general, um, are some of the critiques that continental philosophers have leveled at science's dominance or hegemony over the, the term truth in most people's minds. And the way, for example, Mike Martin Heidegger would put it is that there are many different types of truth and types of human inquiry and types of human meaning making. And, or as another way he would put it, there are many types of thinking Mm -hmm. And I, one of one of the most uh, significant insights I've gotten from him is that every form is valid in search after truth, mm -hmm. it, unless it begins to take itself as the only form of searching after truth. Mm -hmm. So what Heidegger would say is, thinking once it becomes one track thinking. Once any form of thinking sees itself as the only way to think, it actually has ceased to think. Hmm. So, in other words, for me, if we just like, you know, stick with just science and religion, in as much as science takes itself to be the truth and not scientific truth, it actually becomes a form of falsehood and deception. Hmm. And I would say with religion, the same, the same thing occurs. In as much as a religious form of thinking takes itself to be the whole truth and the only way of thinking about something, it too turns itself into falsehood. I remember when I first met Rico over mm -hmm. Skype that what we really got, <laughs> got up in. And so the way that this pertains to the question of hagiography is that, um, and what I tried to look at in my essay was just thinking about how then certain discourses in the humanities adapt and take off this scientific mode um, and feel adjudicated by that or held to that standard and so have to disavow and render false anything that doesn't fit within that category. So that's how his hagiography becomes the other of historiography, Not both in terms of when you say I'm writing a historiography I am writing it in such a way as to talk about things that are true and measurable and verifiable and <clears throat> attested to by, you know, those kinds of criteria. Mm -hmm. And um, when I write a hagiography, I'm not beholden to those same things. Instead, mm -hmm. I'm probably overly devoted to something, and my devotion is making me a dupe in some way. Because love is blind. <laughs> because love is right. blind. Love is dumb. <laughs> um, and then also when you, what you study in terms of, okay, so you create this category of hagiography by separating it from historiography, and then when we approach right. these sources that we've now defined as different, we still bring those scientific modes of inquiry to our investigation of hagiography, which then renders us unable to see what is in front of us totally. It's not that there's not great stuff from those methods that you, you know, that is revealed when you ask those kinds of questions of texts that we'll call hagiographical, it's that it's not enough, that there's more there. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's sort of a 
there are just a lot of implications that flow mm. um, from this hegemony that Rico was talking about. And there's lots to plumb the depths of that we haven't done applying this critique that Dr. Smith and Mahi are, are talking about. Mm. Well, you know, it shows up, it might figure, you know, this will be the, uh, the thing of a composite book like this. I know, I know he shows up in both mine and, uh, and uh, Rachel's essays. I can't remember if, Carrie, did you use Chakrabarty in yours? I did not use Chakrabarty. Isn't that funny? That's that funny. Is, <laughs> didn't need to. Like, <laughs> no, you didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, his, his book, Provincializing mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Europe, mm -hmm. is a great book for taking a look at how uh, Western science is not a neutral right. form right. of inquiry or of construing the truth as much as we often take it to and that it has a way of imposing itself and imposing like all sorts of other cultural baggage that comes from its development out of mm -hmm. a um, you know Euro-American kind of Western uh, Christian and post-Christian ethos that other other cultures have like some pretty important critiques to be making of it. Um, I don't know if, uh, if anybody else here has, has seen it yet, but there was a recent uh, argument that went down at uh, the University of Cape Town hmm. where a couple of um, uh, black women intellectuals from South Africa were challenging science's dominance. And they immediately started getting shouted down by um, <coughs> scientists, so to speak, in the audience for even making the assertion that there are certain things that occur in non-Western cultures that are just dismissed out of hand because it doesn't fit with the, uh, the, the standards that, that, that Western science has declared are the only ways to apprehend truth. Definitely mm -hmm. worth checking out. This is actually mainly going mm -hmm. viral amongst people who want to attack um, colleges and universities and safe space zones and all uh, these sorts of things. Uh, yeah. You reminded me um, uh, in, in the, the discussion of, uh, of Chakrabarti, um, he, I, I believe he, he shows up in your essay too, Dr. Smith, and then I, um, I, I think that's if I remember correctly, um, that's with regard to like the um, sort of the tie of like um, these these non-Western views, which are you know often uh, get get dominated and marginalized, um, you know, by a Western uh, sort of liberal scientific view, and, and sort of the the tie of that marginalization to like how we marginalize the past mm -hmm. too, and like pre-modern views. So I, I was wondering if, if you could speak a little bit about that. What I find helpful as a medievalist in um, his, his arguments about history and the way that history oh. is written um, in a Western context is just that we have this construction of time that is linear mm -hmm. and we think of time as empty and, and we think of it as moving along progressively. So we don't have the layers of time that you have in a medieval worldview. Um, 
where you have sacred time coexisting with mm -hmm. historical time or um, eruptions of eternity into time with mm -hmm. the miraculous. Right. And that what happens is you come up with these narratives that are, he says, first in Europe and then elsewhere. So everything's just kind of seeking to catch up with this beautiful moment that we are now living in or something. <laughs> um, and uh, this, and all of this belief in gods and this, the devotional, what is deemed devotional excess mm -hmm. of the past is something that has to be overcome in order to arrive at this moment. So you can't take the, uh, like a culture's own descriptions of gods and um, of human relationship to divine others on their own terms at all. You place them in this narrative frame where it's unfolding mm -hmm. in this particular way. And it's not, um, and you know, he's just finding this kind of, so it's implicit, I mean, it's often more explicit, but it's often very implicit Eurocentrism mm -hmm. at the heart of that. Rico, am I leaving something out? Like, this is the stuff where I'm like remembering <laughs> what I wrote two years <laughs> no, ago. No, no, no. That, 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 that was a kind of filled in the rest of what I was <laughs> kind okay. of already saying about him. So, yeah. I think one thing that, that strikes me as you're talking, uh, both of you are talking, uh, is I wrote the words. Um, tamed and domesticated. Mm -hmm. So the past becomes tamed, domesticated, it yeah. becomes safe, mm -hmm. and therefore it doesn't become a source really of teaching us anything new. Right. Definitely. That's right? nice. Mm -hmm. yeah. It like doesn't that. become anything new for us. It's just what, what Rachel often talks about, this problem of presentism. Mm -hmm. We are confined uh, yeah. to a lifespan, to an ideology, <laughs> but the past can never Absolutely. actually challenge us. Should enter I, should enter I, Godimer, I, stage left. Can right? I use my Muhammad <laughs> example right now? Yeah, please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so as an example, you know, when I, both in, in my, what I was trying to get at in my chapter in this book, and then when I teach comparative theology, <laughs> I bring in, uh, like I do in the essay, Hans Gerd Gadamer's understanding of, of how the humanities actually pursue truth, not just some worthwhile understanding of, what humans do or something like that. And Gadamer has like three types of conversation that he says that can go on, just even in ordinary human life. One is when you're you're not actually really invested in the other at all. You're just there to like categorize and and um, and render kind of like Carrie was saying, safe and tame, right? Um, the other is just a tool or you know, a form of data collection for you. Um, the, the second form that Gadamer is more positive towards and thinks is a necessary form of, of communication is um, it's a, the kind of therapeutic or diagnostic, the kind you would have like with a, with a close friend or a parent or a therapist where it's still, it's still very like moving largely in one direction, but the person is li genuinely listening to help diagnose a problem and, and fix it. But the final one is when, like, both people are actually open and vulnerable to each other and, and willing to hear from each other and willing to have their, like, assumptions and biases challenged, right? So the, <laughs> in the, in the, what Gadamer further will point out is that the social sciences and the humanities typically only operate in one of the first few examples I gave, 
So it either will be to like categorize and demonize the past, or it will have the like kind of very standard like even even by those who wouldn't you know use this kind of phrase. But that we we study the past. Uh, those who don't study the past are condemned to repeat it. Right. Well, in that is that presentism that, that we were just talking about a moment ago, right? The assumption is the past is bad, and the now, the thing we need to do is not end up doing what the past did. And so to actually, like, so the case of, like, Muhammad and the question of religious violence, often people will, you know, if you either try to ignore, like, certain things, or they'll latch on to, like, that in Medina, Muhammad beheaded 900 Jews who had betrayed him in an alliance, and then enslaved the women and children there, right? And so people that want to be Islamophobic and so forth will say, see, ISIS is doing the exact same thing. Their example is right there in Muhammad, etc." And then often the, the person who's trying to like help understand it will just go into that therapeutic mode of conversation with Muhammad. They don't actually treat him like an equal or like someone who would have something to say. Rather, they will take Muhammad and, and, oh, well, for his time there was this, or let's contextualize his backwardsness so that we can understand that he wasn't really as bad as we think, right? What I do, like following like Dilte and then also Gadamer, but Wilhelm Dilte's understanding of indwelling, he's like, look, let's actually put ourselves in Muhammad's shoes and think about what he would say to us. And then the conversation shows up quite differently, right? Because then it says, Muhammad, you can imagine Muhammad saying, I had an issue of national security. I did what I thought was best. I gave, I gave 900 people that had betrayed me and almost got us all killed a rather quick painless death and gave um, his, the widows and orphans a mechanism for being taken care of. How is it that you guys today do that? Oh, you, you, when you have the same problems, you lock people in a place called Guantanamo Bay <laughs> and you torture them and you do nothing to take care of their, their, their widows and orphans. Oh, you're right. I'm the unethical one. Wow. <laughs> and the point of the students <laughs> is not that like, okay, now we go, like the idea is that I have a conversation as equals and how does that throw us back on ourselves? How does that help us understand? How does doing that like and taking what Muhammad might say to us as a like a critique of what we're doing now without saying we want to go to doing it his way but how does that deeply critique what we're doing and how in some ways he shows up as far more ethical than us which is to take him seriously yeah, Mic drop. Let's walk out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so begins and ends the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's your fusion of horizons. <laughs> I, that's that's really the, the the crux of it is taking these these figures from the past. Seriously, absolutely, as um, as as human beings, and indeed as exemplary figures, too. And, and I, I think we too often can forget in our society, which is as we've been talking about, as very presentist, right? That um, uh, 
we don't sort of we we don't make ourselves we we uh, we, we aren't you know sort of pulled up by by our bootstraps um, like we, we we come from from somewhere and we have to look to other people in order to um, in order to know how to be human in, in many ways and in many cultures looking to the past has been how you do that um, and I, I think. Um, this and, sorry, oh, and, yeah, just, and the yeah. past is Please. not, for those who are devoted to holy figures of the past, the past is not just the past, right? The past Absolutely. is very the present. present. So we're living Indeed. in different times at the same time. So there just is such a different sense through the devotional life of these traditions of mm. how we exist in time and space. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think the the term is used um, um, abundant events. Um, hmm? um, Robert Orsi. Robert Orsi, mm -hmm. right? Thank you. Um, yeah, and, and uh, he uh, he he defines abundant events as um, like you you have this event in the past or this 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 figure in the past, but um, its significance and its indeed its influence isn't isn't limited and isn't exhausted to that. Uh, by that past moment, but it sort of echoes. I, I think he uses the word radiates, actually, and becomes actually present um, to to future uh, generations. Um, and we'd be tempted to think of that as sort of a metaphorical um, sort of influence, but um, in uh, uh, in some of the um, examples studied in, in this book, like um, it can be understood almost as, as like a, 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 a literal radiation. Like there's the um, story of the um, the Tibetan um, practitioner uh, Vimalamitra, mm -hmm. um, who um, in the course of the the, the, the tradition that, that that grew up around him, um, he was he was said to be able to, to emanate into um, um, into future centuries. Uh, to such an extent that um, later teachers would be seen as his emanation. That's I, the I essay by really, Joel Gruber. Yes, that, that, that's right. Um, from legend to flesh and bone is the the, the, the very uh, like striking title of that. Which um, even to to, to pre-modern people, you know, this that these are, are marvelous events, right? They're certainly out of the ordinary. Um, and so I I, I was hoping. Uh, you all could could talk about sort of the the, the role of, of these um, these sorts of these events and, and abilities, like what, what, whether it's emanations or miraculous healings or you know um, return from death, um, and, and like what, what role that that um, that plays and like what effect it's supposed to have. Hmm. Well, I mean, in the case of the first <coughs> bhaktas that I study, uh, mm -hmm. the issue is. Uh, <coughs> One of, I guess you could, uh, to use one word, the, the possibility of transformation. Transformation Indeed. very often in the form of healing, yes. right. very much in this world, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which is uh, very common in, in South Asia, uh, where uh, on the ground, uh, religious difference is um, often elided because people are in search of uh, the, the, the powerful, Mm -hmm. that can cure disease, 
that can right. cure ha- cancer, that can heal relationships. Mm-hmm. And so they go to the source of that, regardless Absolutely. of the name of the pharmacy, whether it's CVS or <laughs> Rite Aid, or whether it's a Pier Shrine, or whether it's Prabhu Yesu Masi, or mm-hmm. whether it's Krishna, or, or mm-hmm. what have you. People right. go for those things. Um, and, and certainly for that, when I deal with that, I am, I am methodologically agnostic. Mm-hmm. I, I go in open to it, uh, frankly, as a scholar, more concerned with how it influences the community and the individuals involved than, did that person really get healed? Mm-hmm. You know, did, right. did Mother Mariam, the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. really intercede on behalf of this person? <laughs> right. That's usually secondary to me. Mm-hmm. than the social reality of communities growing by means of these types of encounters. Right. Discussed Absolutely. in terms, uh, using a, a very common Hindu and Sanskritic grammar of prakat, manifestation. Right. right? Um, and that's how they understand what's going on. So my role is to try to understand what's going on first through their eyes and then to do a kind of translation. For mm-hmm. those who are not so familiar with these trans, trans uh, uh, these trans communities um, uh, context. Um, you know, they say the past is another country. So well, let me bring it up to the, the present, right? Because mm-hmm. just what Rico has said and what Rachel has said also goes for the work that I do in the present, right? We're trying to accept what people are saying in their own terms, taking it, taking it very seriously, right? right? And um, uh, India is a great place for looking at uh, layered epistemologies, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Uh, uh, and um, uh, layers of reality, layers of mm. truth, yeah. and a capaciousness to encountering that truth in its in its manifold right. forms. Yeah, I think the, the the Jains have a term, right? Um, anikantavada, I think, right. like m- right. many sidedness. Yes, yeah, that's right. Which, Much uh, to the chagrin of under other uh, Hindu <laughs> philosophers who can never seem to pin them down because <laughs> of this because of this this teaching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the implications of our approach, um, and I'm not sure, Carrie, how this works in your ethnography, mm-hmm. um, but it would be, and Jeffrey Kripal's forward kind of, mm. he definitely raises this um, <laughs> as a possibility, and he really, this is where he's really, this is what he's very much interested in. Yes. Instead of just like in the work of translation, which we are always doing mm-hmm. whenever we make a secondary source of a primary something, whether yeah. it's a practice or a text, mm-hmm. there is a work of translation. But we also need to be um, thinking a lot about the ethics of that translation Absolutely. and not right. simply recoding things in terms that we feel comfortable with, That's or right. you know, in the case of the study of religion, Absolutely. into those social scientific terms. And so what that means is saying, if they're talking about the possibility of healing, or if Christina the Astonishing's body really Mm. um, can melt like wax and roll in a hoop. I mean, okay, we can see this as a rhetorical Mm -hmm. gesture, Mm. but we can also hold open the possibility that something was incredibly astonishing about her body. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, so that, that, and when Jeffrey gives that example of, the woman, the neurologist who Shakti Pat, yes. what she experienced. Yeah, and yep. she's and she's you know she understands the body profoundly right. in a medical system, but mm-hmm. she says, well, the thing that it touched was my heart, but not my heart. Right. But it's not a metaphor, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's there is. It's not Weberian charisma. No. Yeah. And so 
so it's just this question of what what how we handle the possible or how we don't foreclose mm -hmm. possibilities and that that is really an ethical undertaking. And here's a really interesting uh, thing where the ethnographer, the anthropologist, and the historian are really working in a similar way that the ability to hold on to your discipline as such, mm -hmm. but also that openness, mm -hmm. which is which actually uh, I've been thinking about of using the term a kind of ascetical rigor mm -hmm. to keep that openness okay. alive, mm -hmm. right? To, to be open to the other and to what is taking place. Um, and it's, uh, if, if you're speaking of actual transformation, something that Jeffrey Kripal is interesting, right. that's the baseline. That's you have baseline. to be open. Otherwise, there is no possibility for transformation. Right. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And one, one thing I'd like to add to it, too, is that, you know, earlier, we're t especially because uh, no matter what, you, no matter what I, any of us say right now, there, there are some people that might listen to this and be like, you know, anti-science nut job, religious people. But, um, but um, I want I want to address that. Not only is it the question of you know because because in some ways what we definitely don't want to be doing is reintroducing a god of the gaps kind of no scenario. no right. So in other words, it's like there are some things science cannot explain. Mm -hmm. Actually, in some ways, what I, we're trying to push is. You, going back to what I was saying about one-track thinking, mm -hmm. or in Heidegger's understanding of that, is that there are plenty of things science can describe, mm -hmm. and there's a, even there's a shift in my shifting it from explain to describe. Right? Uh -huh. Science can explain what's going on. So one of the one of the exam questions I give uh, my students and in, in one of my classes is. You go to a, you go, your, your friend finally gets you to go to a, a church service with her. And she tells you, she just wants you to go because she wants you to experience the incredible, like, peace and joy and so forth that, uh, that she has when she's, when she's in her church services. So you finally reluctantly go, and you're blown away. You're looking at the icons in the church, you, the, the chanting is mesmerizing, all this sort of and you really do feel this amazing inner peace. And so you even wonder, is that, is that what people call God? But you're coughing a bit at the uh, incense that really is annoying you, this, this smoke, right? <laughs> so anyway, you go, you go home the next day, you go home the next day, and you're Googling around, you want to learn more, and what you accidentally come across is that frankincense is actually an act psychoactive substance yes. that reduces anxiety. I just learned this, yes. <laughs> and so... That explains so, so much. I know, doesn't it? <laughs> about like interpretation and interpretation, right? Like the reductive impulse is to say, see, it's just that. Yeah. Mm. But the flip yeah. side is science just confirmed that it works. Right. Like it objectively works. <laughs> right and and like what to do with that sort of thing like you know is 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 something that like neither form of thinking can do by itself in, right. in, in my mm -hmm. estimation right. mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so we're trying to get right. at the the yes. the manifold and multiple nature of yes. these realities yes yeah because other, mm -hmm. otherwise what you do what, what what this type of what the science only doing is like you start to pathologize people mm-hmm 
right? This is this is one of the main things that science like taken only by itself and with a certain type of like ethos attached to it. It pathologizes people. <laughs> so the great artists of history, if you were to take the same thing, like they all had like pathologies of sorts, right? <laughs> and so this is where like William James, William James is like really you know kind of one of my intellectual heroes on this point is like actually holding together the scientific, you know, that William James could be like, sure. Muhammad, Muhammad and St. Paul both seem to have uh, possibly had epilepsy, and this is how they had many of their visions, the mechanism to it. But he also then, then goes on to say, and so why is that not real? Or to quote some like greater, pop, you know, more recent pop culture stuff, right? Dumbledore to Harry yep. Potter. Yep. Of course it's happening in head. <laughs> why does that mean it's not real? Exactly. Like learning to stop separating these things from each other mm -hmm. is a key. All right, well, that's been episode one. Thanks, Luke. You're very welcome. Yeah, we hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I know I've enjoyed putting it together. I've had fun working with Luke here. I've had fun uh, talking with these co-editors of this uh, really fun and cool and interesting book. And we're gonna we're gonna keep talking about it next time. Uh, part two is on its way. Um, we're aiming to release about every other week uh, for this season one here. And so stay on the lookout. <laughs>